Welcome to episode 24 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now, today I'm excited to welcome Sieva Kozinski. Now, Sieva is the founder of Enduring Ventures, a long-term holding company dedicated to buying and building beautiful businesses, arming them with great leadership and ultimately holding them forever. Prior to Enduring Ventures, Sieva was co-founder and general partner of the MBA Fund, a leading startup ecosystem among university programs, providing founders with mentorship and seed stage capital at the earliest stages of development. Before the MBA Fund, Sieva was CEO of StudySoup, the largest peer-to-peer education marketplace for students in the US. Sieva, welcome to the show. Alex, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, and by the way, side note, you have an incredible uh, voice for radio and I guess face for television. <laughs> you're too kind, buddy. <laughs> Listen, let's let's start things off. I know you're building a baby Berkshire Hathaway. Talk me through the story to ultimately founding and building Enduring Ventures to where it is today. Oh, wow. Uh, where to start? Uh, it's been a long uh, career, I guess. Um, you know, I, I started my career as an entrepreneur, as a founder. So in some ways it starts there. Um, maybe in some ways it starts all the way to, um, like being born in the Ukraine and my family coming over to the U S but I'll, uh, I'll skip that part of the immigration story and just, just talk about my early career. Um, so, um, when I was an undergrad in college, I thought I wanted to be uh, a doctor, uh, maybe as, as many kids of immigrants want to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or, or maybe that's what my parents were pushing me to do at the time. So I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. I didn't know anything about buying businesses. Um, and, and then I took a class in entrepreneurship. I took an elective in college. And it opened my eyes to this whole new world. Uh, I was taught by a guy who had built a business from scratch. It became uh, go to meeting and then he sold it very successfully. Um, so he would tell us about his adventures of, you know, how he came up with the idea, how they built the team early on, how they raised capital, and then eventually how they sold the business. And, and for the first time in school, I was, I was pretty hooked. Uh, I was, never really into academia. Um, you know, I just kind of did enough to get by. And this was really the first class that captivated my attention. And uh, much to my parents' dismay, kind of changed my interests away from wanting to be a doctor. Um, I, I ended up wrapping up those pre-med classes and heading into a different direction. And I took a bunch of entrepreneurship classes instead and ended up starting my first business, which was an education business. Um, so that was like 15 years ago. Um, I started a few businesses throughout my journey, sold a healthcare business along the way, started a venture capital fund. And then a few years ago, uh, an old friend of mine and I, uh, Xavier, uh, who's my business partner now, uh, we got together and started talking about starting something together. I think we always admired each other and I have incredible respect for him. He's, he's really an amazing entrepreneur. And so we decided we wanted to work together and, and we really started with this idea of, you know, what's the last business you would ever want to build. Um, and we, we landed on this concept of enduring ventures. Of course we, 
uh, didn't invent the concept of a holding company. Um, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is the the original, the largest, um, and, and one that many have been inspired by. But there's also not a lot of holding companies and certainly private holding companies out there. So um, it, it felt like we were we were trotting down a, a path that, that not a lot of folks have taken. Fascinating story there. And I like that complete change from, you know, pursuing medicine to making that flip across to entrepreneurship. Now, I know you do some great writing on the internet, Sierra, um, at least what I like to call these boring business breakdowns, right? Your plumbing companies, your internet providers, your cleaning businesses, yet you do a great job of making them sexy. What interests you about buying, building, and holding these tangible businesses forever? Uh, you know, I think first and foremost, I'm a business nerd. <laughs> um, I've always been a business nerd. I, I love to learn about new businesses, business models, marketing strategies, sales strategies. Um, you know, I, I used to be part of a uh, entrepreneur and founder group. And we would just sit around late into the night talking about different business strategies that we've seen, different business strategies that we were employing and also challenges that we were facing in our business. And we would just learn from each other. So I think it's something that I just do naturally. You know, when I hear about a cool business, um, you know, maybe started, somebody started a painting company that does $10 million of revenue per year. They built it up from scratch, you know, for years, they, worked super hard and oftentimes it was, you know, husband and wife couple answering the phones, painting the houses. Then they hired a few individuals and then fast forward 10, 15 years, um, they run an extremely successful business with an incredible brand that people know them for. They have employees that, that love working there. They've worked there for many years. Uh, and they've, they've built something really, really special from scratch, you know, and, and I, I just, love that entrepreneurial journey. I've been on it myself. I love hearing other people's experiences. Um, I also enjoy, you know, seeing people come up from nothing uh, as is often the case in these blue collar industries that I, that I look at folks, you know, maybe come out of high school or drop out of high school, start with a single truck and, incrementally just through effort and perseverance and sheer willpower um, end up building a really successful business. And, and, and that to me is, you know, kind of the embodiment of the American dream. And I get really excited for all the opportunity they can create for themselves, the opportunity they create for others. Um, so in short, you know, like I'm doing this on a day to day basis, hearing about cool companies and then, uh, what's been cool to see is how people have responded on Twitter recently when I'm sharing, when I end up sharing uh, some insights about these businesses, I guess I didn't, I didn't know there were going to be a lot of other people like me that are fascinated by these companies um, and their dynamics and how they work and, and how they grow and how you can buy them. But I just started sharing them maybe six months ago. And uh, like you said, it seems like a lot of folks are, are gravitating towards it and reading and sharing it. I'm getting a lot of good feedback. Folks are telling me that they want to buy a business, which I think is super cool, or they want to start a business. Um, so it's, it's, it's been fun. You know, it's, we're early in the journey, but, but, uh, but I'm, I'm certainly enjoying the process. I know rewinding the tape a little bit, back when you were 
21, you were turned down by 200 plus investors, yet you still were able to raise the money for your first company um, through sheer power of cold email. Um, I think you sent off something like 1,600 cold emails, which is absolutely crazy. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about this drive and this and this enthusiasm to you know, push through when the going gets tough and ultimately send out this extortionate number of emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, you know, I think success in entrepreneurship is binary, right? Either you try something and you fail and you kind of disappear into the unknown and nobody ever heard about you, or you try until you are successful and you find a path. Um, and like, frankly, I think, you know, if I reflect on where the drive comes from, I do think back on my mother's story of immigration. You know, she left the Ukraine um, when she was 21. Uh, she had a two-year-old child. That was me. And as when the Soviet Union fell, that was kind of the first time you could leave the country legally. And she immediately decided, okay, I'm leaving this place. I'm leaving all my friends behind. Um, I'm leaving my degree. She'd just gotten a, a, a doctor's degree, actually. And I'm going to go to the U.S. because I think, from what I've heard, the U.S. will be a better opportunity for my kid and my future kids. Um, so she left everything behind. She lived a really good life there, frankly. She left all her friends. She even left her husband. She said, I'm going, <laughs> which I think is just an insanely like bold. And um, I don't know. To me, it sounds like just like a crazy thing to do, especially at the age of 21. Now I'm 32. So I'm quite a bit older than that. I, I can't even imagine doing that today, especially going to a place where you don't speak the language and you don't know anybody. So she took that leap, uh, built a life for herself for, from scratch in the U.S., um, and, and created a, an opportunity for myself and my sister who came later. Um, and the, and the U S is, is an incredible country. You know, it's a place where you can start from scratch. It's a place where you can build from nothing, um, and, and create real wealth or real opportunity for your family. So part of what drives me, or I think a big part of what drives me is I just want to do right by her. You know, I want her sacrifices and I want her efforts to be um, celebrated in my life. So I've had all this incredible opportunity. I grew up with English being my first or second language. I went to an American school. Um, I have an opportunity to be an entrepreneur and to build something. So, you know, whenever the kind of going gets tough, which it does oftentimes in business, I kind of think about, I, I lean back and I kind of think about, um, failure not really being an option because I want to honor that experience. So, you know, honing into the early days of raising capital for my first startup and then my fund, um, I didn't feel like I had another choice. You know, I was waiting tables, which I didn't feel like was going to be a long-term career for me. I really wanted to start a business. And then I had this little business study soup at the time which was generating some revenue. Customers were starting to like it. And I needed to go out and raise a couple million dollars to grow the business. And I'm a kid, you know, I'm like 21 or 22 at the time. I don't know anybody. I don't have any experience. I have no network. I didn't go to some 
uh, Ivy League school. I don't have a bunch of friends with, with money. So I think I just realized that, look, I had to find investors. I had to talk to investors. And if I talked to enough people, I would be able to raise the capital because the business was working, you know, and, and there's a lot of people with money out there. That was kind of a key realization for me. And then I started talking to other entrepreneurs who had raised capital. This was kind of the most illuminating part of that early journey. And this is something like I really recommend to any entrepreneurs, go talk to people that have raised money, go talk to people that have started a company or that have hired people. They're going to have very specific insights, very specific feedback. And I remember talking to these entrepreneurs and the ones that were, I talked to some that were successful. I talked to some that had failed to raise capital and it seemed like the dividing line there was, um, did you talk to enough people in order to raise enough capital? And I had one woman actually tell me, she, she actually runs a, a, her business is now a unicorn today, but at the time she had raised her first $2 million. Uh, and I thought she was so impressive and she was maybe a couple of years older than me. And I asked her, how many investors did you talk to? Um, to close this $2 million. And, and she was very specific. She said, I talked to 250 investors um, to close this capital. She said 200 plus people said no to me. And then a handful said yes. And that's all that matters. So to me, that was like my target, right? I, I, I now had a number of people that I had to talk to. And if I talked to those people and I didn't raise the money, then it wasn't meant to be. But if I didn't talk to that number of people in my head, I had failed uh, the effort of, of the input, right? I, I had failed the things that I could control. And that's why I emailed thousands of people uh, because I knew, you know, of those thousands of people, some small subset would reply. Of the people that replied, some subset would get on a call with me. And of that group, some subset would give me some money. Um, you know, what's funny is like 10 years later, I ran into a guy at a party and we were just talking, Hey, what's your name? What's your name? He was in tech for many years. He's uh, uh, an investor, angel investor. And he said, Sieva, Sieva, that kind of rings a bell. Um, oh yeah. And he'd like remembered that 10 years before I had emailed him, cold emailed him. And he just thought that like my message was bold and interesting. He didn't respond. He didn't invest certainly. Uh, but he still remembered me and I was kind of embarrassed at the time. I was like, Jesus, like I emailed thousands of just random people in tech that now know my name because I have a pretty distinct name, but it is what it is. You know, a success is kind of binary. Either you, you did what it was required or, or you didn't. What an incredible story to at least look back on from, from your mother, knowing that there's really no other option in your mind to see ever, but to be successful um, and really, you know, going all in. Um, truly, truly incredible there. Um, I'd love to then know what data points and lessons you've been able to leverage from Study Soup and your early career to now operating the holding company. Yeah, it's a good question. I learned so much in those first couple businesses. There was a business before Study Soup, which was a content delivery solution for professors uh, to deliver their their class content um that was an incredibly challenging business because i was trying to sell to professors i was trying to sell to schools and those are just really hard groups of people to sell to and they don't really have big budgets to try new things or new softwares 
Um, so it was a bit of an uphill battle and we pivoted after a year and a half and then we started study soup. Um, I think I learned that the two main things I learned about were, I guess, broadly business model and industry selection, that being the first category. And then the second is identifying and nurturing and working with talent. And I think, you know, if you can do those two things well, you can pick a good industry, a good business, a good business model, and you can identify good talent or you can work with great talent hand in hand, then you can turn anything into a successful business. Um, you know, the, the, the real lesson from my education days was we picked a very challenging business model. We picked a challenging industry. At first, I was selling to universities, and it's hard to get them to pay for things um, because they don't really run in the way a business runs. Um, a business, I guess taking a step back just to explain, a business owner, if you go to them and you sell them a product and you say, hey, this product is going to make your life uh, easier, like you can do things faster, or you can save money, they will always try your product, right? Because they're, they're making a P&L. Uh, based decision. A university doesn't have to run in the black. They don't, uh, individual people at the company, uh, at the university, excuse me, don't have to make decisions that drive the economics of the university forward. So if you present the solution to them that says, hey, you guys can save money or you can save time, that's actually not a meaningful, uh, that's, that doesn't often move the needle for them. They're actually looking for other things. And selling those other things is pretty hard. So that, that's why that was a tricky industry to sell to. And then after that, when we pivoted, we sold a study solution to college students. Um, we sold a combination of tutoring and class notes, class study guides. It was a marketplace for students to help each other. Good business, good small business. But at the end of the day, your customer are students. And students just don't have a lot of money, right? And if they, even if you build a product that they love, um, they want to use it and then they want to stop using it as quickly as possible, right? Or, or they want to use it and share it with friends. So it's a tricky audience to sell to. Um, so that was, that was a key learning for me is pick a product where the buyer has a lot of money, has a real disposable income, and they have clear intentions for buying your service. Um, and then the talent piece that I talked about is it's really, it was just really, uh, a habit building or kind of a muscle building exercise. I hired hundreds, maybe thousands of people over time um, at our, at our different companies and just the act of interviewing folks, seeing how they perform and learning uh, how to connect those two data points, I think has made me a better um, uh, identifier of talent. And I think that's valuable in what I do today. Yeah. Something I, picked up from your business academy newsletter at the end of july Sierra. you said i think the most powerful skill you can learn is sales everybody is a salesperson the sooner you get comfortable with it the better off you'll be i'm curious to know why sales skills to you Sierra, are so important regardless of age and occupation I'm, I'm really passionate about this topic so i'm glad you're bringing it up um, I have a few different reasons that I'm passionate about it. 
And the first, and the first one is that in high school and college, nobody teaches you that sales exists. And I'm like mad at my teachers. I'm mad at the administration today. I, and I, I harbor that anger with me today because the day I graduated college, the, the day before I graduated college, I'd never heard about sales. I just didn't know what it was. I went to a research university. Uh, I went to high school. I learned the basic topics, history, math, geometry, et cetera. Um, the day I graduated college in the ensuing six months, I realized that, oh, 50% of my classmates went into some kind of sales role, you know, whether it was in real estate, brokerage, whether they're doing sales at a tech company, whether they're doing customer service sales, engineering sales, whatever it was, uh, consulting, investment banking, all of those are forms of sales. Um, and I was just like, man, nobody even taught me this existed. Why is this the number one job type that people are taking or the job skill? Um, so that's part of it is, is I'm just angry at, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm harboring some anger at the academic institutions, uh, <laughs> around the world. Um, the second part of it is like, I just, as a founder, as somebody who's raised money just in my day to day life as well, I've noticed that sales is just the most valuable skill. And second, it's a skill that anybody can learn. There's a lot of skills out there that I can't learn, right? I'll never be a good software engineer. I've tried. Um, I'm unlikely to be someone that, you know, fixes the plumbing in my house. I keep trying to learn it and I'm just a mess. But sales, some people are born with the skill and that's fine. And anyone can learn it because there's very clear strategies, tactics, psychology, you can practice and you can get better over time. Um, and the places where I see sales come up is look like when I had to fundraise for my first business, that's obviously sales, right? I have to sell investors on um, my business and the opportunity and they're going to buy stock of my business. And it's, it, you know, sales is really storytelling, um, and when I had to convince people to join my startup at an early stage, especially when I didn't have the money to pay them what they were worth, I had to convince them of the story of the business, that it was going to be worth something. Um, and it even applies in your day to day, right. In relationships, like, you know, when I met my partner, I had to convince her in some ways that I was going to be a good partner, that I was going to be a good lifelong partner. So you use sales in every aspect of your life. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes it gets a bad rap, right? Like people that are into, uh, sometimes intellectuals kind of look down on sales and they think of a sleazy salesman or like a used car salesman as the image or the icon that represents sales. But that's just not true, right? And I really wish that people started learning sales earlier while they were in school. I really hope that a lot of folks, when they come out of school, take some kind of sales job so they can learn the process and the strategies involved there. Because I think it's a skill that compounds in value over time. You get better and better at it. And it is important in every aspect of your life. Um, so that's my, that's my pitch for sales. Sales skills most definitely are life skills. I think it's the fundamental for influencing others and garnering trust. Yeah, so I'm definitely behind that. Um, now, with Enduring Ventures, you 
arm these businesses with great leadership. I'm really interested to know, Sierva, what's the most important trait of a leader in your eyes? Oh, wow, that's a tricky question. Um, I have to think about it a little bit. You know, I think the, the first thing that we notice about great leaders is they always come with a squad. Folks that we bring on as leaders for Enduring Ventures companies have 15, 20 plus years of experience. And through that time, they have proven themselves over and over again as a good leader, as a person that people trust and want to follow. And oftentimes, when I, by the time I'm talking to someone, for one of these, for one of our CEO leadership roles, they have a team of people that want to follow them everywhere they go, right? So in the first or second conversation, when I'm getting to know the person, oftentimes they're bringing up the idea, hey, you know, by the way, would you ever consider letting me bring on my old, you know, operating officer or my old head of technical engineering? or perhaps um, my old head of finance. And to us, that's an incredible signal. To us, that shows that you know you have proven over time that you are such a trustworthy leader that these people who are also super high performers are willing to leave a job that is working well for them, where they're paid well, where they like their coworkers, and follow you just based on that trust. Um, and, and then that, that, that has been uh, a key identifier for us, for the types of leaders that, that we've worked with. Come with the squad, bring the boys over. <laughs> That's right. No. Exactly. You know, it's like the fantastic four, right? You know, you what, do, do what you got to do to summon them, uh, blow the conch horn, yeah. bring the Avengers. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the reality is like no great company is really one person, right? It starts with that one person, but then they need to put together a team that's going to build something special. And you have an incredible advantage if they come to the, the table with, it doesn't have to be a full team. You know, sometimes it's just one other person, but there's an incredible advantage of finding the right CEO who then brings on uh, an incredible team. Yeah, I love that. I think that's an excellent trait it it makes the addition not just singular but it's you know it's rather than one to one it's one to many and you know the more people you can you can bring on and the the greater the believability of that person i think it just compounds tremendously yeah and and that's really our style of collaboration at enduring ventures with our yeah. leaders you know, we're not getting involved day to day in the individual companies. We're certainly not telling them how to run their companies. They, mm. they are tenfold more experienced, more knowledgeable to, than us. So for us, it's really about finding that individual who has that experience, who wants to follow this more entrepreneurial journey where they own a piece of the business alongside of us. They want to build something maybe from the ground up. And of course, get paid a salary while they do it. And they are really the face. They're really the strategy. All of the success and, uh, and, and challenges are really up to them, you know, to, to address. And, and we try not to get involved or we really don't get involved. Yeah. Speaking of success and challenges, what would be the greatest lesson you've learned from building Enduring so far? 
Oh, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a tough question. There's been so many lessons. You know, there's been so many fascinating lessons. Um, I ran businesses my whole life, and then I invested in technology startups. And then I entered this totally different industry where now we buy both blue-collar businesses, um, you know, what, what you referred to as boring cash flow businesses earlier, and we also <laughs> buy software businesses. And, you know, so we had to really learn M&A in some ways. We, we had some idea. We had some idea of investing. But the act of acquiring business, properly doing due diligence, really getting comfortable with how a business is run um, was all new skills that we developed. And, and now, hopefully, you know, we're, we're much better than we were when we started. Um, but, you know, if I were to take away one lesson, it would just be uh, maybe two lessons. One would be work with business owners that are honest, good people, have built a good business over a long period of time. And if you can do that, you're going to avoid most of life's problems. You know, don't, don't get into bed with dishonest folks, even if the business looks incredible, even if you have an incredible price. Um, because we're doing this forever, we're not private equity. We don't intend to resell a business. Um, bad behavior, bad culture, bad actors, um, all of that will come out in the wash. Eventually you'll see it, you know, come out in the business. You, it's not like we're going to go and flip the business fast enough for, for those uh, warts to not come up. So for us, it's really, we want to get into business with great people that have built great businesses who want us to carry on their legacy. Um, and that's, that's a good situation for us to be in. And given the number of opportunities out there, we can just say, uh, no and pass on businesses don't, that don't fit our criteria. And because we're doing this for a long period of time, we're in no rush to deploy capital. Uh, so we can kind of just sit on our hands until the right business comes around with the right team, with the right culture, at the right price, and then we can get involved. Um, I would say that's, that's really the main lesson is, is just be patient, stick around, um, you know, don't, don't make a rash decision just cause you want to be in the game or just cause you want to own a particular type of business. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, it always comes back to the people. Um, totally, totally. I think looking at your portfolio at Enduring Sierra is incredibly diverse from pool building to broadband, how do you go about picking the complete yeses from the complete noes? Uh, first and foremost, we, we need a leader to work with, right? Because I don't know anything about swimming pool construction. I, I couldn't run that business myself. Um, but we're incredibly fortunate to have a business partner, uh, Jeff Mano, who's the president of that company. He's the face. He runs it day to day. Um, and he knows the industry inside and out. You know, he's been doing it for 20 plus years. He has an incredible team with him. Um, and they're just doing a beautiful job of running that business. So for us, it's, it really starts with finding that incredible person um, that wants to build something special and partnering with them. Um, the second thing is we really look for businesses that are simple, right? Easy to understand, have simple revenue and cash flow dynamics. Um, and are durable. You know, do we think this business is going to be disrupted 
20 years from now? Do we think technology is going to make this company disappear in some way? You know, swimming pool business, I think 20 years from now in Phoenix, Arizona, it's hot as hell there in case, in case you don't know. Uh, people are going to want more swimming pools. People love being in pools. It's an incredible way to create memories with your family and spend time with your friends. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. So that's an example of a business that we think is, is durable and, and will be around in 20 years. Doing a swimming pool here right now in London, Sierra, it's getting pretty toasty. I think it's, you know, in the 90s for, for Fahrenheit-wise, so that's like mid-30s mid Celsius. It's, uh, it's a scorcher today. <laughs> yeah, I've been following that online. It's not, it seems crazy. You guys don't have hot weather year-round. Phoenix, Arizona is like in the 80s or 90s year-round, and then in the summer for three months, it's like 110 degrees. So I would say swimming pools are less of a luxury item, and they're more of a, a necessity. In that more time. of a necessity, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we've we've had that with uh, air conditioning units. You know, uh, no one in London, or very few people in London, um, homes are constructed with air conditioning units, and all of a sudden, the, uh, the heat wave comes, and bam, <laughs> you know, everyone's... Yeah. Uh, just sweating and not in a good place <laughs> yeah and that, that's another that's another industry we love uh, air conditioning service installation um and i think you know especially if you believe in global warming um that trend will be on the rise more and more homes are going to need air conditioning therefore more people are going to need service that's a great durable business yeah i think so right spotting these well not, not even secular it's global trends that are ultimately pushing forward the face of business and then being able to to capture that with some great leaders some great operators i think you know that's that's a, a really really tried and uh, durable strategy sierra i am interested to know when you are hiring for these positions right what do you look for when hiring great talent and how do you filter for the winners um you know, we've been fortunate that most of the leaders we work with have come to us through our network in one way or another. Um, so sometimes we have multiple touch points with them over the years, and that's really uh, an ideal scenario. Um, generally, we're looking for people that have had specific experience in the same industry, running a company that's quite a bit larger than the one that we're asking them to, to take over and has also proven that they can grow the business profitably um, and has also had experience hiring and firing employees. Um, so that's, that's kind of the summary. You know, that, that's our archetype is we're looking for somebody who's a general manager or a CEO or some level, some C-level, some C-type level executive um, maybe they haven't had a chance to own a business or start a business in the past, but they have that entrepreneurial energy. And, you know, we don't really care what industry they focus on. Um, if they're a master in their own industry, we can help them find a business to buy. We can pair them up with the company. Um, you know, we're obviously specialized in doing the acquisition of the business, the structuring of the business, the financing of the business. And their specialty is operating the business, ideally. Um, so if we pair those th two things together, we can help them buy a business and they can run it. Um, and this, that can be their opportunity to build something of their own. With the acquisitions that you've 
done so fast yet, but what was the latest one and why did you get excited about it? Hmm. So most recently, um, I guess just a couple of weeks ago, we helped an owner just like this, just like the one I just described. Um, he's been in the oil and gas repair industry for 20 plus years. Uh, we've, I've worked with him for the last six months or so. Incredible guy. Um, and he's one of these people that other incredible people have followed throughout their career. He has like three or four guys that have changed companies with him over and over again, companies that he's made very successful. And, you know, when he got here and he wanted to work with us, he called those guys up and he said, hey, guys, I got a new opportunity for us. These guys physically move states to come and work with him. Uh, they brought their families. It's just an incredible situation. Uh, he's an incredible leader. So what, what the business does is it repairs oil and gas pipes. There's millions of miles of pipes in the U.S. Uh, moving oil and gas. Some of them are 50 years old. The oldest ones are 100 years old, actually from the early Texas oil booms that were happening in the early 1900s. Um, so as you can imagine, you know, there's constant repair required for these. Um, and there's also leaking pipes, which are environmental disasters. So these large companies um, need to hire maintenance staff to come in and repair these pipes. And it's highly specialized work. Um, and you usually sign up for three to, they usually sign up for three to five year contracts. It's good margin business. Um, and these guys really have the knowledge and what it takes to, to spin a company like this up, but they've never really had the opportunity to be entrepreneurs, to start their own business, to own something. So we're helping these guys and we just helped them recently buy a company that's operating already. Uh, that's on the smaller side, maybe a couple million, a few million of revenue. And that gives them a toehold in the industry with those customers. And now they're going to go out and uh, build up uh, this business. So I'm super excited about it. And I'm excited about it for some of the things I just mentioned. But also, it's, a, it's the type of business that we like. It's high margin. It's asset light, meaning you don't have to buy a ton of heavy assets in order to grow. All you really need is incredible people um, that are trained to fix these pipes and that's how you can grow. Um, and there's a ton of upside, right? These are huge multi-billion dollar companies and there's dozens of them in the US that need this kind of help. You have a great partner, Xavier Helgerson. I'm curious to know why finding a partner in business is important to you, Sieva. Oh man, this is like the most important question you could ask. And it's the most important thing you could ever do in your life. If you want to be in business, it's finding the right business partner because on the far extreme of finding the wrong business partner, that is, if you look why startups fail, why companies fail, that is the number one reason it's because there's a disagreement between the founders. There's misalignment between the founders. Then on the far other side of the extreme, you know, good partnerships, you can build incredible things because you have two people working in conjunction, uh, balancing each other's decisions out, and you can, you know, create 
you have twice as much value, you can create twice as much value than you would alone. Now, there's also the middle path, which is all, which should also be avoided, right? Between those two extremes, there is a mediocre partnership, right? There's two founders that got together and they're making it work, but there's misalignment in skills or vision. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, uh, like I've seen partnerships, you know, like I think when you're getting into a founder partnership in the early days, you need, you need to not rush into it. So more often than not, I see two people get together who kind of know each other. You know, maybe they met each other at university. Maybe they met each other playing basketball or they kind of knew each other at work, but they didn't work on a ton of projects together. They just kind of had lunch together and they, they like each other's attitude. And they say, let's go into business. Let's go 50-50 on something um, and start a company. And fast forward a year or two later, they realize that either they're incompatible or their work styles are incompatible. One person wants to work super hard and build something really special. The other person can't or their skills are incompatible, right? And that's something you really can't tell on the get-go. Incompatible skills is one person is evolving quickly as a founder. They're learning, they're growing personally, they're becoming a better leader, while the other person is stagnant, right? The, per the other person maybe was good at one specific skill, uh, like coding, for example, and they own half the company, but they never really grew to be a coding leader. They never really grew, grew to be a technical leader. So those are all risks for your company. So instead of getting married immediately, I always advise people, find a way to work together for a while. You know, riff on a project, start like brainstorming, start pursuing the project, start fundraising together. Don't You don't need to cement any form of partnership just yet. You really want to figure that out. So Xavier and I had the advantage of first seeing each other work from afar. So I was running my education business. He was running his solar company when we met. I thought he was the coolest guy ever. He built a couple of incredible businesses. He's super smart. He's super kind. And I just kind of fanboyed him from afar for a while. And we were both part of a, a CEO group. So we would get together once a month and hear each other's stories and that allowed us to really hear in a vulnerable, intimate environment, how each person was thinking, how each person was operating. Um, and then, you know, even when we decided, okay, hey, let's start working together. Let's start collaborating. It was, you know, easily six months before we had any contracts in place. Um, we looked for businesses together. You know, we would have weekly or biweekly calls to just talk about, the space, what we'd learned, what we'd read, what we'd brainstormed. And that allowed us to get really comfortable with each other's work style and communication style. And then, you know, six months later, we sat down and said, hey, we should probably formalize this thing. Let's form a company. And we made it really easy. We just went half and half. Um, and it was, this, it was a lot of early indicators of the start of a good relationship. Like, People sometimes say, hey, well, I'm worried I won't get the equity I need. I'm worried, you know, I want to make sure we delineate the equity so that I get the ownership that I'm owed. Honestly, if you're like worried about that with your co-founder in the first three months, then they may not be the right. Either you need to look inward and maybe you're creating the fear out of nothing, or maybe they're not the right co-founder if you're worried about them 
you know, undercutting you or creating a situation that may feel dishonest when it comes time to splitting equity. There was not a single inkling in my mind, and I don't think a single inkling in Xavier's mind as we were spending these six plus months together that, you know, when we did form a company, that it wasn't going to be fair and equitable. Um, and I think that's, that's the basis of a good relationship. And that time together allowed us to get to know each other. And, and it's just been incredibly fruitful since, right? Like, um, I think we've both evolved as leaders and we both evolved our knowledge in this space and we share openly and honestly, we've both made many mistakes throughout the process and, you know, we support each other and we help each other through those mistakes. Um, and I, and we've never, it's never felt, um, like there is meaningful friction that could be hurtful to the relationship. It's always about, Hey, let's solve this for the better, for the better of the company. Um, so it's a really beautiful and special relationship, you know? And, and, and I think it's that like, if anybody can find somebody like Xavier, you're really looking for someone that is kind. They're fair to a fault, right? Anything they do in life, they look to find fairness. They really see the world as an infinite, as having infinite possibilities, as opposed to some fine or some finite resource or some scarcity. So that's me blabbering about how amazing my co-founder is, but hopefully in some ways it's helpful for people to avoid bad relationships and seek good relationships and pursue those because it's more important than your marriage, frankly. You know, you're going to spend 80, 100 hours a week with this person for decades. Um, and and you, you may see your partner, your wife, your husband, less than that. So choose uh, very carefully. You being the number one cheerleader right there, Sieva, speaks volumes about that relationship. So it definitely wasn't a babble. It was a super, super interesting insight. So, uh, yeah, that was that was great. Um, I I do want to know, and slightly off of the investing theme, when you think of success, Sieva, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? Oh, man, that's, that's interesting because success is has so many parameters, you know, like there are a few names that flashed in my mind and immediately I discount them. So for example, like Elon Musk, I think is an incredible person, an incredible entrepreneur. He is an engineering genius. He's a marketing genius. He's an incredible salesperson. He's built some of the world's most special company and he's influenced thousands of entrepreneurs to go out and be more bold, to dream bigger, to pursue more impactful uh, projects. And I think that's, that's really unique. Um, so you would think, okay, he's the richest person in the world. He's successful. But in my eyes, it's, it's not the type of success I seek. I, I'm not that kind of entrepreneur. And I know that, um, you know, he lives from what, I hear from one degree, I've never talked to him personally. So take this with a caveat. He lives an incredibly stressful life. You know, he's bouncing between his different companies. He works all the time. I get that. Um, he's in some ways um, distant from folks that, you know, he would consider his friends or his community and same thing with his family uh, and his kids. And that's really not, uh, that's not my North star. 
you know, that's not the, the pursuit that I want to follow. Um, and then I even think of Warren Buffett and career and life-wise, I think he has a little bit more of a balance, right? He, he really makes his job seem easy. It's something that he loves to do. It doesn't feel like he's working incredibly hard as he's doing it. But again, he doesn't make time for community as much. He doesn't make time for his kids as much. Maybe now in older life he does. But if you read his biographies, that's, that's never been a priority of his. It's always been all about investing, reading, and then investing again. So for me, you know, success is some balance of building incredible companies, working with people that I love and that I care for, but also having a life that uh, creates space for community and creates space for partnership, creates space for kids. Um, so my, my idea of success is that and I don't know that I have a single person that I feel like, oh, yeah, they, they really knock it out of the park here. I, I have friends that are incredible family people. I have friends that are incredible business people. Um, but there isn't one person to, uh, that, that holds all those, all those rings for me. And I'm sure they're out there. I just, I just don't know who they are. Yeah, success definitely is subjective. It takes a hell of a lot to keep all those plates spinning, Sierra. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, and I think, I, I think for a long time, folks didn't put enough emphasis on community and family in the bucket of success, you know, and it was, it was shunned a little bit like, Hey, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur or investor, those are not things you can think about. You need to be a hundred percent focused on your business all the time. And I was kind of like that in my early career. That was the image that I created for myself in my head is that, you know, I had, I need to have a singular pursuit and that was the only way I was going to achieve success. Um, but I realized business success that is, but I realized you can have business success. You can have incredible business success and still be, uh, great with your community, still be great with your family. I just watched this really beautiful Ted talk from the founder of red ventures. It's a five-minute TED Talk. It's one of the best TED Talks I've ever seen. Um, and I, I don't remember his name, but Red Ventures is an incredibly successful holding company, one of the, one of the early holding companies. They own mostly technology and media companies. Uh, and he was on the plane that landed in the Hudson um, in New York. Um, he's sitting, you know, he describes his experience. He's sitting in the first row. They take off. There's some kind of issue with the engine. I think a bird got into it. And all of a sudden he looks out the window and he sees that the pilot is uh, heading for the Hudson and they're going to crash or land in the Hudson. And, and he talks about his three key takeaways. And one of the key takeaways that really stuck with me was how in that moment or, or shortly after that moment, all he he realized that like all he really cared about was being a good father. And maybe for, you know, the previous 10, 15 years, he had been focused on business. He'd been focused on dozens of different things, the way any of us humans are pulled into many directions. And all of a sudden he just realized all he wanted to do was take care of his little girl. He wanted to spend more time with her and he wanted to be an incredible father. And he just shifted his whole world view uh, to that. And I think, you know, if people do that earlier in their career, not everyone needs to get into a plane crash, hopefully, to realize it. 
But if people get uh, focus their attention on the things they really care about that are really important to them earlier in their career, they'll be happier. Um, and it's something that I feel really strongly about. Yeah, that definitely sheds a lot of perspective there. So yeah, but I think yeah, it, it may take a bit of a jolt or it may just take a, a quiet moment of realization. But regardless, I think it's, it's so important to have that. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I think about is like, I have friend, you know, like I have a family friend who he was pretty unhealthy, um, his whole life. Yeah. And then he had a heart attack and then he, he survived. Uh, thank God. He very close family friend of ours. And now he like exercises almost every day, you know, and it really like shocked him into good behavior. Um, and I just think about like, are there ways to use technology to use like virtual reality to create these like life experiences that really shock you into believing that you're going to die or to, to make you feel really scared so that you can really reflect inwardly on what's important and what are things you should be prioritizing to live a better life. Like why wait until you're in your fifties or sixties for God forbid for that to happen for you to, you know, uh, turn a new leaf. Like maybe you could go through this experience in your twenties, shock your system and live a better life. Yeah. No, it, it, the amount of perspective that, that, that gives an individual, I mean, if, if, if there's a product that is going to be formed that can facilitate that man, I'm, I've got to be backing it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, cool. We, we do have a couple of questions from Twitter. Let's do a bit of a quick fire round. How does that sound? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so Austin Belsack, uh, he asks, when it comes to getting bought, what's the one thing business owners spend too much time thinking about and the one thing they don't spend enough time thinking about? Um, I'll take the second part of the question first. So too many owners want to sell their business, want to build their business, and then in the last moment, in the last year, or the last six months, they want to sell it. And they want to sell it immediately and they just want to be done. Uh, they're exhausted, you know, whatever it is, they need to move on to their next chapter. Um, I really encourage owners to think about their sales process five, seven years before they're even starting to think about it. It's hard to do because you're running your business day to day. And I understand that. But it's so important to be strategic about your exit and to sell to somebody who you want to sell to. Right. Um, because unfortunately it turns into a very emotional situation, um, for everyone, which is reasonable. Of course, it's a big part of the owner's life and it feels like a, it can feel like a high pressure situation and owners are not trained on how to sell their business. Most people will just do it once in their life, you know, whereas an owner might be painting thousands of houses and they might be the best painter in Colorado they will only ever sell their business once. So they just don't have the skills and the repetition needed to do that. And oftentimes they'll hire a broker and that broker is going to apply pressure to them on price and speed and who they should sell to. And they may end up selling their legacy to someone uh, that they didn't want to sell it to someone that may not carry on uh, their business the way they wanted them to. So I really recommend folks start early five years, seven years before, understand from business buyers, what are they looking for? What are the dynamics of your business that are important? What is the revenue? What is the growth? 
What is the cash flow? And then the really important one that most owners overlook is team structure, right? If you sell your business and even if it's generating good revenue and it has good cash flow, but you don't have a team running the business, meaning you are still super involved in the day to day, then your business is going to have a slightly lower price than if you had built a team that now runs the business that allows you to be a little bit more passive. It's a little hard to do, but look, if you have a two to five year plan, you can get there. And, you know, maybe you want to work with a coach or maybe you want to work with an advisor to help you get there, but it's totally possible. And that really increases the value of your business. Yeah, that's really, really tremendous. And last one um, from Clint as a, he asks, how were you able to hit the ground running um, and afford the lean time frame, or was it cash flow from day one? Yeah, our our journey is one that I pitch often to folks. It's a, it's a it started with an SBA loan and a couple of small businesses, and ultimately those small businesses generated enough cash flow for us to go out and buy more businesses, um, and that's that's really it. You know, as you to start a holding company, you need a cash flow source. Uh, you need a business that produces cash flow. And then you can do whatever you want with that cash flow as long as you're servicing the debt. You can go out and buy more businesses. You can grow the businesses you have. So that's how we got started. Listen, Siva, um, we, we have come to the end now, um, but this has been really, really, a really great conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it thoroughly, something a little bit different from traditional tech. Um, mate, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure, Alex. This was a blast. I'll talk to you in a little bit.